0: Hello, and welcome to Spectres Above Spectres. Today, in this episode, I'm talking to Mikkel Krause-Fransen. We're having a great conversation about his book, Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. Before we jump into it, however, I just want to ask you to check out my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash If you donate whatever you can, whatever you're able to, we can create a lot of cool philosophical content together. But for now, here's the conversation with Mikkel Krause Fransen. Today, I'm going to interview Mikkel Krause Fransen. And if you don't know who Mikkel Krause Fransen is, he is the author of a book called Going Nowhere Slow. The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression. And Mikkel, thank you so much for joining me today in this discussion.
1: Uh, thank you, Simon.
0: Um, the thing about your book that, uh, that, that really <laughs> was really interesting to me was uh, in the beginning of the book, you, you, you tr- you're trying to, to taunt the reader a bit. Uh, you're trying to be cheeky with us a bit. And I really like that because it's, it's so uh, on the nail in a subtitle to one of the chapters i'll just find it here to the subtitle called uh, scenographic symptomatology you 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 make a parenthesis which i really like in which you're writing scenographic symptomatology or you're probably so depressed and exhausted by now that you can't be bothered to read this Mm. (laughs) and uh... I was, you know, uh, it's cheeky, but it's so on the nose for me. It's so precise and so exact because I was at that point, (laughs) I was actually getting tired, getting exhausted from reading, not from the content of the book, but from just the act of reading itself. Um, So so I was immediately turned on to this topic from that point on. so, 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 just to just to get down to brass tacks, you're writing about depression, and when I talk about this topic with my friends, with our family, with my uh, study bodies, etc., they have a hard time translating uh, depression from what's going on inside of your head to something going on outside, you know, in society, mm. and that's what this book uh, deals with. So I was wondering what is depression to you in this book? And if you if you can get around to it, what? um, How does it differ from the usual way we think of depression?
1: Right? Um, Well, I mean, to stick to your image, um, I would say that depression is both within and no, um, depression is both uh, inside and outside the in individual um so to me depression is a psychopathology that is as political as it is personal um of course depression is an illness um and a painful one at that that is experienced at an at an at an individual level but it cannot be reduced to that level um it is not merely a matter of chemistry it is not merely a matter of biology or your genes it is not merely a matter of your individual willpower or the life choices that you make, um, etc. Uh, I think that what is at stake here is also material issues. It is monetary issues. It can be societal, political, economic issues. And debt is my prime example. I mean, there are plenty of evidence suggesting or documenting, in fact, that <clears throat> if you are indebted or in a state of debt, um, you're much more likely to become depressed people who are not in debt so i would say of course depression is um a painful um individual experience um but it has also to do with the society we live in the jobs that we may or may not have um so there are all these different causes and reasons um why you are depressed um and these reasons and causes are m- are mostly left out of the diagnostic manuals and also of mainstream psychological discourses. And I think we've become so used to, you know, thinking depression and other mental illnesses in terms of the personal or the person e- e- experiencing it, that um, what you described at the beginning, you know, the idea that clever people (laughs) who are depressed um, and even though they at some level they know that their depression has something to do with their situation in the world or their situation in life and with their having just finished their education and they are indebted and they cannot find a job even though they know um, cognitively uh, one might say that the depression is tied up with these societal issues. It is still so hard for them not to remain caught within the therapeutic um, individual psychological discourse. Um. Okay.
0: Well, that all makes sense to me. That you cannot really uh, detach the individual from the circumstances in which he or she is inscribed into. I guess you could say. Mm. And um, um, one one curious thing you do in this book, which I really like, is that you sort of um, pose two questions that sort of demonstrate the societal depression that we are in. You know, how are you and what time is it? Um, why do you consider these two to be significant?
1: Well, um, I find them significant at a uh, phenomenological level, uh, one might say, uh, in the sense that having read a lot about depression and having talked to people who are depressed and having read a lot of uh, literary and fictional books, uh, etc., it's clear to me that one question that keeps popping up and a question that remains very difficult to answer (laughs) to people who are depressed is the question of how are you doing or how are you? And you can either choose to lie and say, well, thanks, I'm fine, how are you? Or you can actually answer the question um, honestly, saying, well, I feel like shit. Um, (laughs) I couldn't get out of bed this morning. I just lost my job. Um, My partner is an idiot, whatever. Um, um, And the other question about time or temporality, I think that's pertinent because I consider depression to be an illness in and of time so i think there's a deep connection between depression and temporality so my claim is that if you ask a depressed person what time is it or what time it is um, you can also get a sense of um, the state of society or the state of the world in i mean i'm not the only one who in that sense consider the depressed person to be some kind of seismograph um, of the contemporary society um, and I think that uh, that um, that loss of futurity that is at stake in my mind um, in depression and um, the inability to imagine the future uh, when you are depressed, I think that is symptomatic of the world that we're living in, um, the feeling that there is no tomorrow, the feeling in depression that the seconds are just, you know, dragging themselves along, and when you look at the clock and then you look at the clock again, it is as if the time hasn't moved at all. Um, so that kind of temporal experience I find um, both helpful and pertinent in thinking about these um, difficult, um, important issues.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can t- I can totally see that because. There's got to be something symptomatic about the way we're constantly checking in with each other. Um, Mm. You know, hey, are you okay? Is this okay? Are you doing good? Whatever. (laughs) Um, It seems to me like a very pathological feature about our society uh, that we treat each other in this way. But um you, you made an interesting point one uh my my friend and i was actually talking about this uh prior to this interview and he you know i was asking him well how are you you know how are you uh, doing and he was mm. like i'm fine but not really and then we were sort mm. of talking about it and he was like well when you say something else then uh then you know i'm good when you're actually saying well life is actually pretty shit right now you know it seems almost like a childish provocation was his point mm. and it seems like you're actually acting against the common thing to say here it seems almost yeah. childish like
1: yeah really but also i mean i've often found myself um embarrassing people and myself really um when answering that question um honestly right i mean saying what you really feel i mean that can actually be a quite embarrassing thing to do and yes. i guess I mean, the thing is um, that there's also this hidden expectation um, inside that question, that seemingly innocent question. There is this expectation that you are supposed to be feeling great, that you're supposed to be happy, that you're supposed to be, you know, just having the time of your life when most of us, most of the time are really not yeah
0: uh, <laughs> yeah I completely agree um, the, the other thing though that's that's something I, I find you know what time is it and the the, the uh, temporality of depression that seems to be a tricky one for people to, to understand as well because you have a quote in here somewhere at the beginning of the book in which you deem depression uh, uh, a sort of a chronopathology mm. I, I really like that <laughs> I really like that concept Uh, But I was wondering if you could sort of expand on the temporality of depression, um, because that seems to be a struggling point for a lot of people and myself included, I guess.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, the first thing to note, I guess, is that there's been a proud tendency within psychology. And I think going back to Sigmund Freud, at least um, a proud tradition and influential tradition of thinking about temporality in depression and in melancholy as something that is mostly related to the past. I mean, you have lost something or someone and then you grieve or you you mourn it, that loss. And if you are kind of stuck in that loss, it becomes pathological. And then you are in the transition from grieving to becoming depressed. Um, That's kind of the uh, Freudian framework. And what I was finding in the very beginning of my research period or project um, was that it struck me that depression, maybe it had more to do with the future than the past um, and the loss of the future, as I also mentioned before, all the loss of the ability to imagine the future, because, of course, that loss is as subjective as it is objective and it is as imaginary as it is real, right? I mean, of course, the future is not objectively lost, but that's what you feel like. And of course, there are also, um, I would say, objective historical reasons for you to think that the future has actually already been lost. Um, And then I read a lot of of, um, phenomenological studies um, from within a German tradition where they have, um, I mean, and that goes back to Carl Jaspers, who is perhaps mostly known for his philosophical work, but who was also doing a lot of important work within the field of psychopathology. Um, And he wrote this huge book called um, General Psychopathology. Um, And he he talks a lot about mental illness and time. Um, And then, I mean, Building on his work, we have a more contemporary scholar called Thomas Fuchs, who works at the intersection between philosophy and psychiatry, really. Um, also um, doing a lot of research on that uh, aspect of depression. And he, he talks about desynchronization is his key concept. And I, and, and I found that incredibly useful. Um, thinking about the desynchronization that occurs, the temporal desynchronization that occurs in depression um and what he means by that or what i mean by that is that you kind of feel out of sync with the surrounding world when you are depressed and the time that you inhabit so to speak is not the same as the chronological clockwork time um 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 outside you um so I think that has been important for me to think about more um that temporal slowness or inertness that you feel when you are depressed. And and I mean that I mean that it goes without saying um at this point really that I've also been I have found it crucial to really take seriously the experiencing or you know, the experiences um, of depression um, both within academic work but also within literary fiction, artworks films etc and I mean sometimes I think that aspect to be lacking in certain critical leftist analysis uh, of depression um, and I, I guess we can come back to that later on But I, but I think that's also been really important to me
0: Right, and I actually see a lot of what you're. Well, I well when I was reading the book first, I I, I noticed a lot of I guess intellectual debt to Mark Fisher, who sort mm. of uh, and others as well, Berardi and you, you just mentioned two, two influences yourself. But I, I'm a guy who primarily comes from Fisher. This entire podcast was sort of uh created um from his writings in Mm. a lot of ways so that's the one i was sort of noticing and i guess that's what really separates you from him because you know if if i'm not uh, being too simplistic here i guess that he he talks about as well the the cancellation of the future the slow Mm. cancellation of the future and the um you know how how the virtualities have been blocked off in a way that, of course, mm. time still moves and history is still being written, but there's nothing significantly new about it. Um, you know, in in a in a really exciting newish way. Um, and you know, I sort of see you know writing about this, and um, I kind of have a, a sometimes I have a kind of a, a hard time accepting. Uh, that's, what you call it, assumption, in a way. I guess this is me being a bit critical. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Because when it comes to to these futures, um, uh, it seems to me that some people out there, they don't view the world in this depressive manner um, when when they look toward the future. Uh, You know, if we talk about these objectivities out there, you know, climate crisis, Impending economic crisis, um, hmm. more coronaviruses out there. I, 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 I guess I would argue that most people don't actually l- look to the future as something menacing in a way. You know, when I'm talking with friends <laughs> on my age, you know, in, in our 20s, we, we, we usually joke about it, but there's this hope. And I guess this is something we could return to as well, because you, you wrote about this in the book as well. They turn to this non radical hope of, well, there's got to be something beyond, you know, yeah, climate crisis will come, but we'll survive. We'll figure out something. Uh, Does that make sense?
1: Um, Yeah, it does. Um, And I think there's a lot to be said. Um, Yeah, yeah, um, and I think, I mean, it was, I mean, I can't believe I haven't already mentioned the work and the name of Mark Fisher because... uh, I mean, I owe him so much in terms of intellectual debt uh, that can never be repaid. Um, So, um, yeah, now that's um, said and over with, uh, I guess, um, just um, paying that homage. But I think, I mean, I get what you're saying, but what I've been trying to historicize or periodize in a way has been a historical trajectory. trajectory from the early 1970s onwards um, which I would consider to be our our historical Mm -hmm. present in a way and I mean if you talk about the belief in a better world or the belief that we will have a bright and shiny future and I mean and that certainly characterized some movements of especially the early 20th century right I mean you had the avant-garde you had Mm -hmm. All kinds of movements um, that really believed that they were able to instantiate or initiate uh, a, a better version of the world either right now or sometime in the future. And what, what is clear to me is that from the beginning of the 1970s, after 68 perhaps, and with the crisis of the 70s that are so reminiscent of today, what you find there is that that belief sort of evaporates. And I mean, Jimmy Carter held this famous crisis of confidence speech in 1979 where he talked about that the young American generation for the first time in American history, they didn't believe that their future would be better than their present and that they would be the first generation in history that were actually not better off than the previous one. And I think there's just been really some data a year or two ago that actually documented um Within a U.S. context, that uh, that that is actually now the truth. That if you are born now or young today, you are probably worse off <laughs> than your parents were. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I mean that are these are objective historical economic facts to a certain extent. But then there's of course also the spirit or the you know the general atmosphere surrounding and accompanying those facts that are. And this atmosphere um, is as important to analyze and understand uh, as the facts themselves. Um, And of course, it's not the case that everyone is feeling like the future, that there will be no tomorrow. I mean, and of course, we are not all depressed. We are not equally depressed. Mm. Um, But what I... Fisher is trying to say uh, or wanting to say and what I am also in his vein so to speak trying to say is that when you are depressed then you have this feeling and that is you know not ungrounded in fact Hmm. yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, it makes sense um I guess one thing I'll sort of challenge you on and then we'll move on because this is really an interesting thing I, I you know this um you know this explanation of the broken promise you know we were promised mm. something and then that fell through and now we create ontological music and are depressed mm. or you know it's it's just something about it um i'm trying to square it with like a deleuze guattarian desire in a way mm. um because you know you know they they were notable uh, notably um, post ideological so they, you know desire expands so whenever something is sort of being Imposed on us in a way, you know, we're actually we're actually talking about not a lack, but actually an expansion of desire. Mm. So when I see the when I see the world, um, you know, I, I I think we have to revert back to the question they asked at the beginning of Antigone: Why do people desire their own suppression as if it was their liberation or salvation in some way? Mm. And you know, I was just wondering if you could. Put some words on that for the Deleuze Quaterians out there.
1: Well, it's it's funny because I, I used to be quite Deleuzean. That was my first real, you know, fandom, I guess. It was a course I had in Germany uh, with one of his um, English translators or Australian, actually, Paul Patton, he was oh, called. Man. And I was really into Deleuze at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I am sort of, you know... Not left because that's a stupid thing to do, and who cares anyway? Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, totally. But I mean, I think that Franco Bifo Baradi who I also have my disagreements disagreements with, um, certainly much more than I do with Fisher, um, because I think Fisher is much more attuned to the real suffering of people who are depressed in a way that Bifo never has been and never will be. But at one in one of his books, and I don't remember which one. Um, he writes about how depression is sort of, you know, a black hole in the edifice, the philosophical edifice of Deleuze and Guasari. Yeah. And they have been able to conceptualize so many different pathologies and, of course, most famously, schizophrenia. Yeah. But they have never really addressed the topic of depression. And maybe that's because he writes that it falls outside um, the whole way of thinking, that they cannot actually, um, within... Uh, with their conceptual apparatus, they cannot account for depression um, in a way. Yeah. But what he then does, and that's actually quite, quite um, um, original, I, I would say, is that then he goes on to discuss, I think it's the end of What is Philosophy, um, yeah. the last book. And he says that when they are talking about, I think there's a passage there about black holes or something like that. And they are discussing something completely different. And I think they're talking about old age and, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Bifu then goes on to say, this is where they are actually describing depression. And I think he's totally right in a way. And there's a lot to look into. Um, I had a passage about that this in my dissertation. And I kind of remember if it found its way through to the... Uh, book version. Um, but I mean, that's an interesting discussion. Um, but yeah, the question of desire and depression is, of course, what is at stake here, right? And I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: because, well, Mark Fisher has this uh, quote. Uh, I'll never forget it. I unfortunately forgot where, uh, in which blog post he was writing, but he said that Deleuze and Guattari was right in everything un- until those points where they disagreed with Lacan. Um, mm. so, so you know, this just—I uh, was <clears throat> just sort of uh, making sense of the—I don't know, yeah—the—the the methodological conflicts. I don't know if that's really mm. the word and you know, the concept to use here, but because you know, there seems—and you—you do it sort of as well. You know, you're drawing in this book on Deleuze and Gattery, and you're drawing on Baradi and Lacan, and I, yeah, I was just trying to sort of square um, the explanations um, and how they how they sort of function. Sure. Um, okay, well, we'll move on. We'll not really move on. We'll actually move on to something uh, um, that is very chic right now, I would argue. <laughs> and that is depressive realism and mm. the way you view it in the book. I thought it, I thought it was really a tremendous passage you had of it. So I guess what I'm asking is, can you explain depressive realism and sort of, uh, you know, how you view it in this day and age?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the notion of or the idea of depressive leal- realism stems from an infamous article. By this point, uh, from 1979, uh, by two scholars called Aloy and Abramson, um, who 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 you know launched the ne- launched the notion of depressive realism to say that depressed people are not depressed because they have a distorted or delusional view of reality. They are depressed because they actually have a more accurate assessment or perception of reality than people who are not depressed. And of course, that caused quite a bit of controversy. Um, But I think it goes back, and I also write about this in the book, it goes back to the Article by Freud that um, hasn't been brought up now, Um, his um, 1917 article, I think it is, uh, on mourning and melancholia, where he at some point speculates why it is the case that depressed people seem to have a keener eye for the truth than others who are not melancholic. Um, And I think that whole notion has then had some traction within a, a certain speculative but also pessimist kind of philosophy right um and i think i mean i've been skeptical uh, of that idea from the very beginning not really on scientific grounds and that particular study that i refer to has been you know debunked in various ways but i think it's much more on political grounds that i disagree with this notion but also on the i mean in terms of trying to understand what goes on in depression i think the notion of depressive realism tends to romanticize depression in a way that I'm not comfortable with, and of course that not only goes back to Freud, that also goes back to Aristotle, mm-hmm. uh, who who establishes this quite strong connection between the genius, the male genius or the creative mind, and then you know the mad and melancholic. Um, mm-hmm disposition, in a way. And I think, I mean, what Mark Fisher is really good at is showing how depressive realism, or the realism that you uh, subscribe to when you are depressed, that that kind of realism, that depressive realism actually goes hand-in-hand with what he calls capitalist realism, so that the realism that you are promoting, so to speak, is actually totally in sync with the realism that capitalism, uh, promotes or wants you to promote. Um, and I mean, there, I mean, I think that's true actually. And I mean, I was reading, uh, Anse Block at one point and we can maybe get back to his notion of hope, but he writes at the beginning of his trilogy that, um, uh, he writes, um, about capitalist nihilism or cynicism and he says that capitalism actually seeks to spread cynicism and nihilism so that people people are actually convinced that there is nothing to be done um and of course i mean that said of course um contemporary ideologies of happiness and positivity and optimism they are all stupid they all need to be criticized i mean that goes without saying and i think that's not really an um, enough, and it also doesn't really necessitate the notion of depressive realism.
0: Absolutely. Um, um, I was also uh, referring to to some of the crit- I remember specifically two critiques. One that if you know it's it's a very arrogant point of view. in a in a mm. way, you know, you know, I have no illusions. You know, that's also a, a thing Fisher writes in in his um, little essay on Joy Division, I believe where, you know, it's completely black and white, and, you know, I am completely without illusions, that's, that's, you know, I, I find that to be so true, and we can get back to that in, in a second. And the other thing, which I think is very spot on as well, the critique you make is that these people, um, well, not all of them, but, you know, a certain highlighted cases of depressive realists. Um, you know, people who are very out there, very um, forward-speaking uh, in a way, sort of, you know, they, they they spout inane platitudes. You know, they're being banal mm. when they say something about life. You know, it's, it's a very... Uh, it's not a very productive way, I guess. And again, I was trying to make the distinction that, of course, there are some people who are depressive realists that, you know, are you know, introverted and, and, and introverted and careful how they choose their words. But there are some people out there who, you know, especially YouTubers <laughs> who, who sort mm. of uh, puts everything on the line and sort of package this depressive realism as an ideology. You know, we have so many, you, you just touch upon it yourself, we have so many ideology, yeah, ideologies, I guess I'll call them, of philosophies. We have pessimism, uh, there's nihilism, there's um, anti-natalism, which has been mm. huge <laughs> in these times. And, you know, Benjamin Noyce, I remember, he was sort of uh, critiquing or, I don't know, critiquing or commenting on continental philosophy being dark. Mm. You know, Thomas Ligotti, uh, Ray Brassier's nihilism, <laughs> and Eugene mm. Thacker, you know. There's a lot of darkness going on, I mm. suppose you could say. Yeah. Um. And and I see it as well. Do you, do you you know? Uh, we talked about it just prior to this, uh, to the recording. You know, the Wojak Duma mean, hmm. um who's very popular,
1: and um, you, you know, and and do all your listeners know what that is? You reckon, or should you just yeah, explain that? Yeah, well, well I'll, I'll make the quick explanation.
0: But I okay. find that he's very he's actually very popular because he's he's okay. part of the <laughs> he's part of the Wojak. Uh, character who has a distinct sure. outlook. Who is very yeah. I guess people could Google him, but he's always bald. But usually, always pretend as being bald, and then being white-skinned, etc. And you know, then there's the 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 um, there's the version called Duma, but there's actually a lot of Umas. You know, <laughs> this is mm. very m- m- mimetics. I guess we're we're going into right now. There's the Duma, the Bloomer the kuma the suma you know all of them sort of expressing um a, a person you know the 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 apotheosis of a person or sort of the representation of a person uh you know to the to the most extreme degree so the suma is a uh, is of course the people who are younger than you and i you know coming uh, coming after millennials etc but the duma let's just stick with the duma i was getting out I was getting uh, on a tangent there. No, yeah, it's great. <laughs> the Duma, you know, there's, a, there's really an entire law to this thing. You can't really just mention one meme. There's an <laughs> entire network thing that you kind of have to deal with. But the, the, the Duma guy, you know, he's wearing a black beanie. He has a black coat or a black uh, hoodie of some kind. And he's usually always smoking. And he's looking tired and disheveled. You know, he has bags under his eyes. He has a patchy beard. He's not kept at all. And he sort of expresses this mindset, I guess, of depressive realism. And I was wondering if you could uh, put some words, you know, well, that's a very Danish way of saying things. But could you, uh, could you, could you talk a bit about the Wojciech Duma meme um, mm. if you've encountered him?
1: I have actually. I think that's one of the only memes that I've encountered in my thirty-six-year-old life. Uh, really, um, I've not been. Yeah, I guess I'm. Maybe already too old um, for that. But I mean, I have come across it um, actually. And I think the key issue here is one of masculinity. And I think that also resides in the question of depressive realism or pessimism. Uh, uh, I just finished this review essay of Eugene Thacker's uh, Infinite Resignation, where I actually deal with, but also critically, go through almost all of the things that you were mentioning before um, and that particular dark philosophy, yeah. as one of the books is called. And what I found to be true or what I claim in this essay is that that kind of pessimism and of course there are different kinds of pessimism mm-hmm. uh, in plural, but that kind of pessimism it, it so often it harbors a position of privilege, in a way, or it is a very privileged position to take um, that way of thinking. And and I think the Wojcik Duma is also a very masculine character. Um, um, and I think, I mean, we have, talking about depression also, I mean, we have a ratio that is, I guess, still around two to one in the favor of females compared to males. So there are twice as many women who are diagnosed with depression than men. And of course, there are a lot of reasons for this. um, Sort of, you know, men don't go to the doctor and all this stupid shit. Um, (laughs) uh, But then when you look at the rates of suicides, it's almost completely reversed. And I think we have so many cases uh, also just from recent years of, suicides, Jerome Rogers, Daniel Desner, all kinds of, you know, they have been reported on in the news where people who are just, you know, having a, a unpaid, uh, what's that called? Uh, um, a parking spillet. Uh, it's called in Danish um, parking, ticket. Parking, parking ticket, of yeah. course, or yeah. a traffic fine on $20 or 10 quid or whatever. Yeah. And then you cannot pay it. And there's some time passes and then you're just, so desperate at, it, at and indebted that you end up killing yourself. Um, so I think the question of suicide is also really interesting Absolutely. and I think I mean what I also found when I was looking into the dumo character was that Ryan Gosling's character from Blade Runner 2049 yeah. is often mentioned as well as this you know oh, yeah. I could,
0: yeah yeah I could see that yeah yeah
1: and but what I always come back to is Fight club. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyler Durden's famous speech in Fight Club. I don't know if you remember that or the listeners, but where he talks about that Tyler and all of his Fight Club gang members, they are the middle children of history, he says. Yeah. They have no purpose or place. And I'm just quoting now. I have it right here. Okay. They, so I'll just read it out. Yeah, yeah. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is the spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We have all been raised on television to believe that one day we would all be millionaires and movie guards and rock stars, but we won't. We are slowly learning that fact and we are very, very pissed off. (laughs) And of course, I mean, that is also really interesting in terms of 4chan and 8chan and, you know, uh, toxic, fragile masculinity. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I mean, and of course the question is also... When does depression lead to implosion and when does it lead to explosion, so to speak? Um, When I wrote a Danish version, uh, a book version of my PhD, I I had a chapter on this question and the question of suicides, but also the cases, the extremely interesting cases of depressed people or mentally ill people who are turning their depression outwards so to speak so they kill themselves but they take a lot of people down with them tragically enough whether that is um, school shooters uh, the Virginia Tech school shooter or whether it's the German pilot uh, Andreas Lubitz I think it was in 2014 where he crashed with his airplane Um, so we have these murderous suicides we have a lot of young men who feel that they have been robbed of their future and are thus entitled to act out but who are still fucking depressed yeah. <laughs> and who have a history with mental illness. Um, and then, of course, we also have, and I'm just, you know, going on here, but I think we also have a the idea, the ideological idea of manning up right. as a solution or a cure to depression, yeah. um, which, of course, brings uh, Jordan Peterson uh, into the equation in a way. Um right. And I think one of the contrasts to the Doomer is the Go-Getter. I guess you're familiar with him. But, no, but, actually, no. <laughs> okay, you should definitely look into that. But I mean, he is pretty much the same picture, but someone has just replaced a lot of the key words and sentences ah, that okay. surround the Doomer. Yeah. And the Go-Getter's <laughs> sentences, they go like something like, what is done is done, there's only four words. And it goes like something like in control of his own destiny. Yeah. And enough is enough, and he has a plan. So he's really manning up, and not just you know smoking cigarettes in his you know baggy jeans and black clothes and etc. So yeah, there's a lot of issues here that are yeah incredibly exciting to talk about. Absolutely. You actually well one thing is
0: there's actually a Dumaret. I don't know if you noticed oh. her. Yeah, that's actually a yeah, okay. version of the Dooman.
1: I thought that was impossible in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, Okay, no. it isn't. It isn't, and she's actually
0: kind of cute. I don't know if I should say that. I probably shouldn't say that, but, you know, if, if you ever look her up, you know, she looks you know attractive, and you actually see those two together, and you're kind of like, ah, oh. you know, even a meme can find love, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the other thing you know because you're really touching upon something very topical right now and that's uh, the whole men's rights uh, mm. the manosphere I guess they call it as well
1: yeah
0: within that uh, you know they have the pill speak do you know the pill speak no uh, they they sort of take the example from Matrix oh yeah sure yeah, yeah. Yeah. okay you know the red pill you know yeah. if you if you're you know, I have to be careful because some of the people listening are actually accelerationists from the right. So I kind of have to be careful. But okay, you know, you know, they basically um, impose this misogynistic way of looking at the world. You know, females mm. or you know, fem fem feminoids, I believe they call them. You know, the stasis okay. out there. And that's my point. There's some people who have, uh, you know, the incels. Mm. Yeah, uh, exactly. They have they have taken the the black pill. There's something called you can be blackpilled now. Okay. And that's uh, that's actually very in tune with what we're talking about right now, because if you're blackpilled, you have sort of accepted the truth, the biological deterministic truth, that you were born not to have sex, you know, within the mm. incel community. And, you know, it's a very fatalistic way of viewing things, it's a very defeatist way of looking at things. And they, you know, there's a lot of body dysmorphia going on, obviously, mm. one of the most, uh, one of the, one that really made an impression on me was the incel who made a post. He posted a picture of his uh, wrists and then he said, my wrists are too slender, too slim to, you know, for a woman to ever love me or to have sex with me or whatever. Um, that's just, you know, it seems such a ludicrous thing <laughs> in my yeah. head, but, you know. <laughs> There's definitely something up in the air right now um, with this whole fatalistic mindset, I guess you could call it. And, you know, then you have a guy, you, you, you didn't mention him before, but you mentioned people like him, uh, Elliot Rogers in 2014, I guess, who was an incel. And he actually wrote a manifesto in which he mentioned that he was an incel. Mm. And then he went out and shot a lot of people and then killed himself. Mm. And people, incels in particular, these fatalistic, defeated people, they look to him as a hero. Mm. And they usually, if you talk them, if you find them out in the wild, you know, on Reddit or Twitter, whatever, they won't categorically deny that they cannot do a shooting as well. Um, So I guess what I'm teasing out or trying to tease out is that there's there's definitely some some kind of depressive realism, but there's also, you know... Frankenstein's monster version of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, what it leads to, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, and and I mean it's frightening really. And but what I think from an purely analytical perspective, what is also interesting is the ways in which the depressed depressed people that we've been discussing up until this point, and now some of these right-wingers, incels, uh, young men who who feel like their whole future and all their rights have been, you know, taken away from them. The ways in which these two kinds of depressions, or kind of, you know, that they are both, yeah, modes of depression, that they are symptoms of the same society. Um, and different reactions to it and I think we can easily criticize some of I mean almost every one of these um, incels and of course it's I mean they're killing people and they're writing racist, misogynist things um, online and of course it is important to not only criticize them but to actively you know um, go against them but it's also important uh, again from an Analytical point of view to try to understand, um, however horrifying, to try to understand um, where they're coming from and what yeah. they are speaking about and what their position in society is. Um, Absolutely,
0: actually, you're actually segueing very well into what I want to do next, um, and that is read you a quote from your book mm. and then sort of um, you know have you comment on it. I guess uh, ex- exactly in in terms of empathetic understanding and well maybe just from the from the start uh the the analytical understanding i'll just read it from page 105 for anyone following along at home uh you're actually talking about uh you're sort of reading david foster wallace's bi number 20 with mm. the good samaritan mm. and now you're sort of concluding like what what will this lead to and um you know, it's it's about I guess the story, if I'm not uh, if not wrong, is about a woman who gets kidnapped kidnapped by a rapist. Mm. Is
1: that correct? Yeah, and potential serial killer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: <clears throat> but what you draw on? That's yeah, an
1: awful story, really, and it's difficult to explain in a few words. That's for sure. Okay, but I'll just <laughs> I'll will just recommend people to read it then. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, well, I'll just read up uh, read um, out loud now. Um, about this woman and the rapist. She does not say, you are my neighbor, but rather, I am your neighbor. The difference is radical, since she does not make him into an object of her hippie-like, new age-ish love, but presupposes the capacity for love in him, thereby making her into the object of his potential love. More, More accurately, she makes herself into the thou that is so unfamiliar and frightening to the rapist. And I guess you know, when it comes to depression, I believe you write it in the book somewhere as well. That the loss of the future is also the loss of the other. Um, mm. No, and I know this. This is a lot to take in. But could you sort of um, bring us up to speed? Like, what do you like? What can you tell from this situation here? What can you make out of it?
1: Well, I think I mean what I want to say actually uh, to be. Truthful uh, um, is that <clears throat> some of the things that I write in the book uh, they are pretty troublesome to me now. And but uh, but maybe more accurately, uh, I have especially David Foster Wallace and Michelle um <laughs> that I have devoted so so much attention really mm-hmm. um, yeah. and analytical attention. What I've also, in hindsight, been trying to do, I think, is trying to work my way and write my way through their work. So it started out as a fascination. I really liked their work, but now on the other side of this book, I really don't. Oh okay. uh, <laughs> And I've thought about that a lot. Um, why is that the case? But maybe it's not that unusual that the stuff that you' are really working through is also the stuff that really makes you tired and you know you want to throw up basically. but <laughs> yeah. but, but you also write to arrive at a point where you can write something else. And something different. And I think I mean that is certainly true of these passages on David Foster Wallace, but also on Will Beck, to be honest. Um especially do these two chapters. So that's not a a way of you know <laughs> being um, too hard on myself, I guess. But it's just a you know it it's been an interesting experience, let put it that let's put it that way. But I mean this particular specific passage it's really difficult to unpack. Um, yeah <laughs> uh so I am not quite sure where to begin, yeah um well, I think, and I think oh, no, just go on, just oh. save
0: me oh. here <laughs> okay, I will um you know, um this is actually something we can go back to no, I'll I'll go back to Mark Fisher now because you know, one of the things that he's talking about is this how to um, and I think this is what I was trying to get at without saying it, so maybe I'm in the wrong and not you. Uh, he, 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 you know, he has this project of sort of infusing uh, modern movements we see today with an anti- anti-capitalist edge, you know, mm. um, and also a, a kind of socialization, I believe he calls it. Mm. And I was sort of seeing this, this uh, passageway, this way of viewing the other as sort of a way to get us there. Because, uh, you know, when I look at these uh, amazing movements going on right now, Gilets Jeune in France, um, whatever, Greta Thunberg has got cooking up. Uh, you know, she's mm. made quite a splash. And you can, you know, things in Chile and in Hong Kong, you know, all these things, uh, they stay at that horizontal, very impersonal level. They, you know, you can maybe critique me here, but they don't really amount to much more than that and i was just trying to sort of fuse this quote with that conundrum in a way or trying mm. to get us there uh, i was wondering was that something you could elaborate on or
1: yeah i mean what what i can say is that at the time i was really into and perhaps too much <laughs> into uh, the question of spirituality or the spirit as a political concept in a way uh, i read a lot fanatic layer and he talks about spirit in a really interesting way so what i was convinced and i think i still am but perhaps less so um is that we cannot solely talk about material or materialist issues also into ter- in terms of talking about anti-capitalism and social movements there has to be some kind of spiritual or one might also say affective mm. uh, vitalist maybe even Aspect. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure about vitalism, but some kind of emotions or affects that are also animating your actions in a way, and something to believe in, as uh, you know, a precondition for getting out of bed and for actually, you know, doing stuff. Because if you do not believe in anything then you might as well just not do anything, right? Yeah. And I think what I've been trying to do in my chapter on Rebek, where I talk about spirit uh, in a way and, and religion also, um, yeah. and in these passages on Wallace uh, with St. Kierkegaard and the question of love and the Christian um, imperative of loving thy neighbor, is also a, a way of talking about cures to depression, And in Wallace that often gets called empathy. Hmm. And I have been since then skeptical of the notion of empathy, preferring instead (laughs) to talk about care as a concept. I think that's much more helpful. And I think one might also translate this passage into a question of care, caring for the other, or caring for the others. And what I do believe that this passage tries to say is that you shouldn't care about other people only if and when they are nice people mm. you sh- we shouldn't take care of refugees because they are nice people from the middle east mm. that has absolutely nothing to do with the question of migration or the question of refugees and the question of political action in that mm. case and we shouldn't care about the neighbor because he or she or they are nice mm. so the task that I think Wallace puts in front of us, and Kierkegaard certainly does as well, is that <clears throat> the task is much more radical. And it is a question of loving or caring for people, even when they are strange and strangers, and when they are not like you, and when they are hideous, as these men in the stories of Davis Wallace, they always are. And of course, the title gives that away i mean (laughs) the title of the book in which the story appears is called brief interviews with hideous men so there is the question of misogyny and masculinity at stake here as well but where i am a bit uncomfortable and i think some readers may be as well is that to what extent should we you know how far does our ability to care or to presuppose love in the other how far does that ability go, or how far should that go? Should we yeah. care for people who are racists? I'm not sure, and I think that's difficult questions but I also do think, and that point remains valid. I do think that these were the questions that Wallace himself was also himself sorry was also struggling with, and I think that made lot of his readers uncomfortable as well and what i do still also think holds true is the importance of trying to confront difficult questions uncomfortable questions head-on instead of you know dodging them or avoiding them altogether. i think this is a way of not answering your question but maybe still answering it in some way yeah definitely
0: um i guess i am not really an analyst Yet, I guess I'm I'm trying to get there someday, and uh, that that allows me to be very overtly political in my in my questions. Um, you know, um, I just uh, yeah, I, I think that's just what that's why I want those those um, tricky tricky questions and those tricky answers because there's no easy answer to any of this. No. Um, one thing I just wanted to. To, to ask you about is um, the current climate we are in today. Uh, mm. I'll just move on very, very quickly, very elegantly uh, into the impact of the coronavirus. Um, mm. We have seen during this uh, trying times a lot of death, a lot of people uh, getting fired, uh, a lot of unfortunate, no unfortunate, disgusting ways of talking about other people. But we have also seen, these amazing displays of community. Um, mm. You know, in Denmark, we have these, uh, uh, you know, people going, and I guess this is not only a Danish phenomenon. I guess it's it's all over, all around the world where people would gather on their balconies and then sing to each other, and then they mm. would organize it through Facebook. And there's also these Facebook groups where they gather people around who help out the, uh, the, the persons who are infected with the coronavirus. Mm. And it just seems to me that people are going out of their way to, you know, almost be with other people and uh, you know there's also the whole thing about social distancing so hmm. with all of these <laughs> with all of these uh, these things um how do you view you know in, in in conjunction with depression how do you view the current coronavirus i guess i would say i'd ask you
1: yeah i think we have different topics here uh, I think the first one is that, of course, the relation between depression is and the coronavirus is not an immediate or an obvious one. Um, but what I do think is clear, and I think there's also been some data um, evidencing this um, is that the current crisis, if we can even go so, and and I do believe that it is a crisis. It is an ecological and an economic crisis. And it is a social crisis, and it is also a healthcare crisis, but it is also a crisis of mental health. And I think that's perhaps been, and and of course, for obvious reasons, and I mean those reasons being that people are dying, and people are losing other people, and uh, unemployment, a lot of, you know, more immediate concerns maybe, but I think... The issue of mental health in this situation is also pertinent and remains uh, to be analyzed in a way. Um, and I think, I mean, when I've talked to my students, I think it's clear that some of them are feeling much more isolated, much more depressed, much more anxious. Um, while others, of course, on the other hand, may thrive and, and in this um, interregnum um and i think we do we have seen a rise in suicide um suicides um, during this crisis so we have a lot of stuff here in terms of not only physical health but also mental health Definitely. and then with the communities singing no and then what i also wanted to say is that going back to the one of the first points that we were talking about namely the question of how are you yeah. how's it going I think I've actually asked this question for the first time in my life. I've asked this questions to friends and other people and meant it. Yeah. So I think that's been quite remarkable that I have both with friends, but also, I mean, strangers, uh, you know, academic people that you are just for somehow writing an email. That's actually been uh, sincere, sincere. Uh, exchange and sincere exchange of concerns and, you know, care maybe also. Um, so I think that's been remarkable. I think with the communities singing on balconies and also in Denmark, I think that's obviously not enough. And I think sometimes it also gets this nationalist Flavor, in a way, it certainly does in Denmark, where we have this Danish way of singing, singing together. Um, and then it's also a question of who is left out of that singing, who's part of the singing and who is not. So I think it's not as simple as, OK, yes, we have a lot of new communities mm-hmm. springing up in this time of crisis. We have also, and of course, we do have people going out of the way, as you put it. To help other people or to be with other people or to be near other people yeah. two meters away but we also have some exclusion going on we have some nationalisms going on um can, can, that i also oh, sorry. yeah sorry no just oh, uh, interrupt me please
0: i will because this is something i haven't considered myself so i'm, I'm really, really curious about the exclusion going on in these communities could you expand on that
1: Yes, I mean we have the Danish National Broadcasting Company or system that has this uh singing along or sing along events every day, but especially Friday night, right? And people can, you know, record their singing on the phone and you know, my children have to have done that and, and I've got I'm not necessarily against this kind of, you know, community. But it's also so clear to me that it's a very white a white um phenomenon and it's a very nationalist way of going about things um that has left me wondering about uh, who is inside of this singing and who is not hmm. if that makes sense i hope it does
0: yeah yeah i i guess it does um i was you know i when I, the danish broadcasting that's dia right that's what yeah they call it, yeah um you know i always viewed the as actually a, a place where we could get some sense of community I, I guess nationalized yeah I, yeah uh, but I guess nationalization isn't always the <laughs> the thing we have to be careful of uh, so, so i was I was kind of yeah i guess i'm I'm prodding you on this one because mm. um what what's the what's what's so bad, I guess you could say what's so bad about this kind of community you know a, a wide thing i guess dear isn't isn't it for everyone it's public and uh, you have to have it you have to pay a license to have you know i i guess i'm i'm trying you on this one because i uh, i yeah i see it as a kind of more emancipatory than you do
1: yeah um well i mean in principle it is of course for everyone uh, living in denmark um, with a uh, is that called ip address also um, in english uh, so i guess it is for everyone but that's only in principle and on paper um I think in reality, it is not. And, you know, I'm living in a neighborhood uh, where my kids go to school, where I think we are maybe 25% white people. And I've talked to other parents, uh, Muslim parents, for instance, uh, and they certainly do not sing (laughs) along. They are not part of this community singing. And of course, then one might... Very well. Say well. That's our own fault. They, I mean, they yeah, the offer is there. Danish liberal, broadcasting company. Yeah. yeah. So, but I think I mean. That's one aspect that I think it's important to to think about. But I also do think that, I mean, then we have people in in camps around the country. We have sure. uh, asylum seekers, and when speaking about social distancing, when speaking about staying at home it's of course ridiculous because they people these people they do not have a home exactly. and uh, they do not ha- have the opportunity to uh, to be social distancing and they certainly do not have the opportunity to sing along with a bunch of other uh, <laughs> Danish people um so i think these are important questions and but uh, then on the other hand we have care in this situation that extends beyond the family beyond the hospital beyond the state and i think those are the movements and the moments that i'm really interested hmm. in
0: yeah yeah while, at, while
1: while at the same time going through an an extended crisis of care um that is always already on the brink of collapse if it has not in fact collapsed already so it is it is of course this um paradoxical situation
0: okay well moving on from that I, I I will just read you a quote from this book you've already mentioned it we've already been talking about it but I feel like this quote perfectly um, let me just see if I can find it yeah it perfectly sort of encapsulates the issue one might face when when reading this book and I'll just read this quote to you uh, and this is yeah this is out this is as well from from the Wallace. Uh, Chapter. so you may disagree with it, but... Depression saturates being. It is a feeling which takes complete possession of the human being that experiences it. In that sense, the allusion to the physical concept of black holes is not out of place. Since there is no bottom to a black hole, it simply engulfs you, rips you further and further apart in the dead mass of darkness, where the pull of gravity is so strong that even light cannot escape. It reflects no light when things sound that um, uh, menacing and so i guess i would say totalizing as well how on mm. earth do we cure ourselves of depression
1: <laughs> yeah i think i mean maybe going back and since we are both uh, uh, uh from denmark mm. um we can go back to san Kierkegaard to begin with and and say that when he talks about hope and I will get back to why this is relevant when when he talks about hope he says that the real task of hope does not arise in a situation in a situation filled with light it does not arise in a situation in a situation where everything is just fine and dandy the real task and the real paradoxical radical task of hope only um yeah arises in a situation that seems objectively hopeless. That is where we really need to be able to hope. And I think, I mean, I think there are two steps in this book. The first one is to present an an analysis of depression and by proxy of contemporary society and the political economy that is accurate and thus also dark. Um, there is no question to my mind that things are really not going that great, that we are in a state of deep economic, ecological and psychological crisis. Um, But that doesn't mean that there is no cure and that there is no solution to the problem. So I think that's an important first step, but then we need to take a step more. And some people, they don't take that first step. They just go to the second one saying, well, everything is fine. We should just stay positive. Things are great. But there are also some people who stay in that first one saying, well, there's no light. It's only shit and dark and <laughs> whatever else you can imagine. Um, so I think, OK, we have a situation in which the economic ecological crisis are only getting worse by the day, even if the emissions uh, currently are, you know, falling because of, you know, the lack of air traffic and the lack of uh, uh the use of oil etc um okay i kind of lost the thread no and we have a situation in which, in which more and more people are becoming or diagnosed with depression mm-hmm. um and i think so how do we proceed from here um i think the cure is care uh, to put it into a slogan uh, that cure is healthcare also going back to your point about national healthcare of course of course it's a good thing to have a Welfare system like the Danish one compared to the one in the U.S. Yeah. There's no question about it. Definitely, it, yeah. it offers people the the opportunity to actually get treated for their various illnesses. Mm. Having said that, it's clear to me that it's also not enough, and that the care you are offered within the welfare system is not enough. Mm. So I think we need care that extends beyond the hospital and the state and the family, but also extends beyond the dominant forms of therapy cognitive therapy and positive psychology i don't know if you've ever been to a therapist i have and i think it's clear to me that that discourse and that help is an individualized and to some extent medicalized one um and where the purpose is to get back to get people back to being productive positive citizens and to get people to get back to work uh, a work that may very well have been a cause of their depression in the first place. But I think the cure is also economic and political. Sometimes having a job is the cure. I think sometimes having another job is the <laughs> cure. And sometimes not being indebted is the cure. And I think there's a lot to be learned from various projects in the 19th centuries. in, no, not centuries, century, <laughs> um, where a lot of medical solutions to the medical problems of you know to medical illnesses and medical diseases were not found within the realm of medicine were not found within the biological uh, or the medical realm but were found within urban planning they were found the solution within better air better water um, more light within the apartments all those things that we know by now they actually you know Sometimes they actually um, had the benefit of, you know, destroying the conditions for the diseases in question. I think we need to also go to the bottom of the problem of of depression and, you know, not only treat the symptoms, but also uh, treat the causes. And of course, within the diagnostic manuals, these causes are not addressed. They only speak about symptoms um, that you may not be able to sleep or that you are, Um, that you're just not feeling well. Um, But I think there are reasons, historical, political, economic reasons why so many people are not feeling well. Um, So I think, and of course this is a bit abstract, but I think it's important to insist on these um, questions, um, but also insist on On the necessity of getting out of bed, um, I think. I mean, that is the most um, one of the most important tasks today. I mean, before we can do revolutions, before we can do social radical social changes, we need to be able to get out of bed. Really, I've written that yeah. before also, but but I think I mean that is a, that's uh, stayed with me that notion, and of course I mean. To be able to get out of bed, we also we also need radical solutions. We also need networks of care, uh, so that we have this uh, dialectical relationship, one might say, between uh, radical change or social change and you know uh, psychological change. And of of course, the point here is not to you know psychologize politics, or to reduce the question of you know the political economy to a question of psychology, and of course the goal is not to get another diagnosis included in the DSM so that we can talk about corona concerns or corona anxiety or climate grief, Mm. but it is important for me to recognize uh, and take seriously um, the depth of these kinds of suffering, um, of the pain of depression, and to start thinking about getting people out of bed in the morning.